Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by Mike Haven. As many of you will know, Mike is both the head of legal operations at Intel and the president of Clock. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. Mike, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Sacramento, California, which is about two hours east of San Francisco. And it's the capital of California. So that's my hometown. And you decided to go to college at Santa Barbara. What led to that? Well, if you've ever been to Santa Barbara, you would know why. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And it was also well known at the time and and probably still is as one of the more fun schools to attend. So I was interested in not just learning a lot and getting ready for a career, but also having a good time. That certainly took place in, in Santa Barbara. The reason I asked the question was when I was in law school myself in Dublin, Myself and uh, friends from college, we spent a summer living in Santa Barbara in Isla Vista. So <laughs> I know it well. And we were flabbergasted that this was a place where you could go to university and live this idyllic lifestyle on the beach. I know a, a school with a great reputation as well. So I'm extremely jealous that you got to spend more than the three months I had there. Now I understand why you asked the question. That <clears throat> Isla Vista is a couple square miles of utopia for people between the ages of 18 and 24. We frequently go back, my family and I, to Santa Barbara to visit. And every time we go, I have to drive the kids through Isla Vista and and show them where I lived. And they're just like, oh, no, here we go again. Dad's showing us the old college stomping grounds. So yeah, there were good times. I actually had a job working on a a sailing boat on the marina that was owned by the drummer from Journey. So it was, it's a pretty cool town. There's a lot of interesting people live in the area as well. Wow. And Journey's still at it as an aside. They, they've got something going in Vegas right now with an orchestra behind them. And I hear it's pretty awesome. So yeah, it, uh, it definitely kickstarted my interest in Journey. You have to admit, I wasn't a big fan before. I know they had the resurgence after uh, the Sopranos used the Don't Stop Believing at the end of the last episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And Mike, what then led you to deciding to pursue a career in law? Well, it's an interesting story, actually. I um, wasn't sure coming out of college what I wanted to do, but one of the things I was interested in was going into finance and working on Wall Street. So I went and interviewed near the end of my senior year in college in New York and had some opportunities there. But then I decided that I wasn't quite ready to go out and go for it in my career yet. So I moved up to Lake Tahoe and was a ski bum for a little while. And Moved up there with a couple of my college buddies. And while I was there, you know, I realized that I was at sort of a fork in the road and I could stick around in Tahoe for a while and live paycheck to paycheck or go out and, and start doing something to earn some real money. And I realized that I had a great opportunity in law because my father was a successful lawyer and had a great law practice in Sacramento. And I decided I would pursue the opportunity to go to work with him and eventually take over 
his law firm. So I applied to just one law school, the law school in Sacramento. And I did that so that I could work at his firm while I was in law school. And I did that. And it was indeed a great opportunity because it gave me the chance to really dive in and do some things that other firms wouldn't have allowed me to do at that early of a stage in my career. I got a lot of great experience early on and ended up working for his firm for five years. And then life happens. And I can talk about that if you'd like to, but it's definitely, you never know where your career is going to take you. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. My dad was also a a lawyer and I was the managing partner of a boutique firm in Dublin. I ultimately decided to go into one of the larger firms to train as a corporate lawyer. I'd be interested, Mike, in your perspective now on what the benefits were, were starting your career in a, in a boutique firm, where I imagine you were maybe given more responsibility more quickly, seeing a broader scope of work. But looking back now, what do you think the key benefits of it were? You hit it spot on. You know, I was actually taking depositions before I graduated from law school. There's a provision that allows law students under the supervision of an attorney to do things like that. And the firm, my dad's firm had a lot of confidence in me because they knew me and they knew my capabilities. And so they basically let me do things that I would never have had a chance to do in any other firm. So take depositions. And I was even trying cases to verdict at a very early stage in my career. So that was one of the things that was attractive to the big firm when I eventually made the move was that I had a lot of great experience that young lawyers typically don't have. And obviously you have to be given that opportunity, but also have a pretty high ceiling in terms of your capability to take that on at at a really early stage in your career. Was your dad a key mentor for you at that stage or were there others within the firm that you learned from directly? He was, and so were his partners. Yeah, my my dad was, and still remains, one of my major mentors. He is my hero, my champion. Uh, Of course, he's my dad, so I love him, but he was a fabulous attorney. He's not practicing anymore. And when I was in eighth grade, I got to watch him argue a case to the United States Supreme Court that became a seminal case and it was a case that we actually studied in law school. In fact, every lawyer out there listening right now would remember the Asahi versus Superior Court case that they studied in civil procedure. My dad argued that case, and, and I remember watching him argue it, and I remember Sandra Day O'Connor grilling him in the courtroom and thinking, wow, this is crazy. But he took me under his wing and became not just my dad, but my mentor in law, and taught me the ropes and we even got to try a case together. So that five years that I worked with him, I'll always look back very fondly upon as as special years. Incredible memories I'm sure to have and a a tough act to follow, I imagine, as a litigator in many ways to have such an experienced uh, litigator as your dad. What attracted you then to to K&L Gates? So I got married and my wife had an opportunity to go to work for Stanford University, which was basically her dream job. And if she was going to take it, that would mean we would have to move to the Bay Area. And my dad's firm wasn't in the Bay Area. And and as back then, remote work wasn't a thing. (laughs) So you had to go into the office every day. And so what we did was moved. And I gave up 
my dream of taking over my dad's law firm for the benefit of my wife's dream and moved to the Bay Area. And she took the job at Stanford. And that meant I had to get another job in the Bay Area. And it turned out that K&L, which was under a different name at the time, had just opened their office in Palo Alto. And there were only a couple lawyers there. They were building out the office. And I had an opportunity to go there and help sort of build that office. And actually, when I first started, I was primarily working in the San Francisco office, but also working with the Palo Alto office. And it was just a great opportunity. And as K&L Gates is a great firm. So I was lucky to have that opportunity. And it sort of became the foundation for what was to come next, which at the time I had no idea about. So again, you never know where your career is going to take you. And it's always an interesting journey. Similarly, when I joined the Matheson, the firm I was with in Dublin, when I joined, my, my intention was to, to stay there for my entire career. And certainly even after a few years as a senior associate, saw myself very much progressing on a partnership track before the opportunity to find Bright Flag arose and the kind of legal technology space, legal operations really started to explode. And it is difficult, I think, for anybody to have a very clear perspective on, on exactly how their career is, is going to unfold. But I imagine... Mike, it was a fairly different environment to this, the working in a small boutique firm, joining a firm like K&L Gates. Can you recall what those kind of fundamental differences were and how you kind of dealt with them uh, as you kind of built your career there? Absolutely. Yeah. It went from, I was basically running my own practice at the small firm and doing everything from case inception to trial. And when I moved to the big firm, you're, you're at the low end of the totem pole at that point. Again, they were attracted to the fact that I had that experience, but that didn't mean they were putting me as lead counsel in trials right off the bat or really ever. I was part of a bigger team and doing a lot of things that lower end grunt work <laughs> that younger attorneys do, but that was good too, because that gives you a perspective and gives you a different kind of experience that becomes very valuable later on in your career. So I was, again, part of a bigger team and involved in huge matters versus somewhat smaller matters in my boutique firm. So I got a, a perspective that I hadn't seen before. And obviously, over the period of time that you were with the firm, it grew significantly. Obviously, working in Palo Alto, the whole tech space was, was exploding at the time as well. How did your own practice evolve over your seven years with the firm from maybe being a kind of a member of a team on larger matters to, to kind of taking on a more a leadership position within the firm? So first, at the very beginning, I was working on like toxic tort type matters, and that lasted for a year, maybe two, but I found a mentor at KNL Gates. John Michelson sort of took me under his wing. And he was interesting because in an era where people are very specialized in big firms, he was sort of a generalist litigator. He, he did lots of different types of cases. And that gave me an opportunity to spread my wings and look at and participate in lots of different types of business litigation, employment litigation, IP litigation. So I've got, I got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. 
And that was really cool. But as time went on, my caseload became more focused on trade secret litigation. And there was a, a fact pattern that was very common in my cases where somebody would come in to a Silicon Valley company and help develop technology and get the false impression that because they developed that technology, it belonged to them as opposed to the company. And then they would take off with it. And we would represent the company, tracking them down and harnessing the intellectual property that they essentially stole, and then trying to get the company compensated for that. So that was a, a fact pattern that I was involved with quite frequently. And those cases were fun and, and interesting to me. So that's where I hung my hat for a bit. Obviously, you were getting more and more exposure working with these growing technology companies, uh, representing them, and your practice kind of focusing in on supporting them and protecting their, their IP. I'd be interested to understand when you became aware of the legal operations movement. Yeah, this is a story that I tell quite often. I was One night I was at a San Francisco Giants game, and I was sitting in the second row at the game, and somebody I had never met before was sitting in the first row right in front of me. Her name was Connie Brenton, is Connie Brenton. <laughs> and she and I started chatting about what she does and did and does, and it was fascinating to me. I hadn't heard of legal operations before. It was before legal operations was well-known or even really a thing, but she was one of the pioneers and was already doing it. So we talked about it and we kept in touch over time. And eventually I went to work for her at NetApp and had the most incredible opportunity to learn the ropes from her. And so she sort of became my third major mentor. We talked about my dad, we talked about John Michelson, and then came Connie. And that was truly a, a fortunate encounter and, and something that set my career off in a completely different direction. That's incredible coincidence. And uh, um, obviously you've gone on to become the leading light in, in legal operations. We'll discuss all of that, but I sometimes wonder whether people like Connie or Mary O'Carroll understand both at the kind of the individual level and at the macro level, the impact they have made because here at Bright Flag, Mary was the first person in the legal ops space we were ever introduced to. And she was so supportive, so helpful. She introduced us to Connie at the time. We got great product feedback. We were encouraged to come and sponsor the first clock conference in San Francisco and and we really always point to that as the kind of the kind of transformative event for us as a company and that legal operations movement that you've all you all started has been so transformative for the broader industry. Now, from the kind of that game where you met Connie to to joining NetApp's legal department, that's a big change from private practice to, to not just joining the legal department, but moving into a very new type of role. So how did you navigate that? Well, it was very much a leap of faith. And that was the actual phrase that Connie used. She said, Mike, if, if you come do this, it's going to be a leap of faith because we don't really know where this is all going. And she was such a pioneer and, and so brave with what she was doing. And I admired her very much and still do. And the way it worked was when I joined NetApp, I, I wore two hats. I was managing litigation. 
and also learning the ropes in legal operations. So it made the transition a little bit easier because I didn't just come in and dive completely into legal ops right away. I also had my comfort zone in litigation and, and I was already good at that. So that helped. But really what I, just, I did was just absorb everything I could from Connie. I, I tried to learn everything I possibly could from her because it was so obvious that she was the best at what she was doing. And I was so grateful to have that opportunity. So on the legal ops side, I was just learning really at the time. And Mike, can you kind of walk us through how the team, the legal ops team evolved in terms of the kind of functional areas, the roles that kind of developed and net up uh, over that time? Yeah, it was actually a, a fairly small legal ops team because Connie was leveraging the ALSP model and had extensions of her team through outside partnerships and was using that model extremely successfully. So that also was a huge learning for me was that you're not confined to the team inside the four walls of your building. You have partners outside who can really help you succeed. And that was sort of my first foray into understanding the legal operations ecosystem and how it works and how it can make so much sense to leverage that to be successful in your in-house team. So that's, that was her model. And, and I learned a lot from it. And Mike, something that um, I reflect on a lot is when, when I trained and worked as a lawyer, to a large extent, the focus is on perfection and accuracy. And that's what you're being paid to do. And then when we were building software, working with clients at Bright Flag, you need a, a slightly different perspective, which is, to some extent, developing a product, putting it in the hands of your users, getting feedback, not focusing on kind of complete perfection or solving for 100% of use cases. Did you kind of find a similar adjustment in kind of having to kind of reset your thinking at all from wearing your hat leading litigation to kind of how to approach the legal ops projects that you were working on and, and what kind of success looked like on those? Absolutely. It's sort of the 80-20 rule, right? I mean, if you're striving for perfection in everything you're doing, you're probably not getting enough done <laughs> because you aren't going to scale. So you have to get to the point where it's good enough and then you move on. And over time, you continuously improve. So I, I think that was another thing that I learned in that jump and something that I've constantly been striving to get better at throughout my career. I've sort of been a perfectionist by nature all my life. And that's something I've kind of battled against because it doesn't necessarily help to be a perfectionist. You need to get to the point where you've done well enough and then move on so that you can scale. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think I faced the same battle. I think there must be something in the lawyer DNA and training that it's something that you have to bear in mind and ensure you don't fall into that trap. You joined and Connie obviously was a, a kind of a leading light in the space and had a clear vision and was leaning heavily into the ALSP model. Without kind of divulging any confidential information, can you kind of give any insight into the kind of types of projects or initiatives that you worked on in, in that initial legal ops role at NetApp? 
Yeah, we were doing a lot of vendor management type initiatives, law firm management type initiatives that were really cutting edge at the time. Some things that were, that are almost seen as normal now were very cutting edge at the time. So sharing data with law firms and doing quarterly business reviews where we provided our law firms with scorecards about how they were doing using both quantitative and qualitative data, leveraging technology to make things more efficient. I remember there was a, a very painful contract lifecycle management implementation at the time, and that was new stuff back then. We're talking 10 years ago, and that obviously things have become much more common now, partly because of the pain that we and, and others were going through at that time to get the industry to where it is today. So those were exciting times and challenging times. Absolutely. You were the kind of pioneers in the space and certainly quarterly business reviews with law firms using data to inform and manage the relationships would be common across a large proportion of our customers now, but that certainly wasn't the case maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago. You then moved to GAP to build the legal operations function from the ground up. Can you walk us through your approach to building out the foundational elements and in particular how you approach kind of change management with key stakeholders where the function hadn't existed before? That approach is sort of the playbook that I've also carried into my newest role, which is you start with a listening tour, really. You first listen to your GC and find out what your GC's priorities are and go from there. But then you go around the department and talk to everybody you can about their pain points and the things that they see as opportunities to improve. And you find common themes and you, you whittle them down to a few of main themes and then you focus there first. So if you think about the clock core 12, all of the various areas that legal operations covers, it's impossible to come into a department that is in early stages of legal operations growth and do everything all at the same time. You have to pick a few battles and prioritize them. And you do that based on collaboration with the rest of the team. And then once you find your priorities, you focus on them. And so that's what, that's what I did at Gap and that's what I've done at Intel. And then you grow it out from there. I think that's how anybody has to come into a department where you're building a legal operations program and start with that. Do you find that there can be a conflict between the general counsel's strategic objectives, maybe cascading down from company objectives and the feedback you might get from individual lawyers or legal team members around pain points they're experiencing. And would you have any advice on kind of reconciling that conflict as to what the roadmap or the projects should look like for a legal department? You have to focus on what your GC wants you to focus on, but you can influence the priorities of your GC based on what her team or his team is saying. So you get thoughts from your GC and then you go around and talk to your department and then you go back to your GC and say, These, this is what I'm hearing. These are the themes that I, I'm hearing about. This is the roadmap I would like to pursue 
what do you think? And should we tweak it? And it's really about communication and collaboration. And that might shed some light for the GC on things that she or he didn't realize at the time either. So, you know, it's all about getting as much information you can and synthesizing it into, I like to do a one page roadmap that, that shows very clearly what I think needs to be done and then iterate from there. And we're obviously living in challenging times and I'm always interested in the impact that the kind of macro level environment can have on the strategic objectives of the legal department and the legal ops team. Are you seeing any signs of, of the kind of the macro level environment impacting the type of projects legal ops teams are focusing on or looking to improve on? Certainly. We're heading into a recession right now if we're not already there. And that presents different challenges and opportunities than a time period where the money's much more available. You have to consider the macro level environment and focus on what you need to do for the company at that particular time in its history. And I think something we've kind of laterally touched on is that alignment with the general counsel, which seems to be the real key to success is having a very clear perspective on, on their agenda, their priorities, and having their buy-in equally for those initiatives that you choose to work on. A hundred percent. The general counsel is listening to the CEO and you're listening to the general counsel and you're trying to do what's best for the company. You have to keep the big picture in mind all the time, which is we're here to help the company succeed. And you want to help the general counsel help the company succeed. So that's always top of mind. And you obviously joined Intel, I understand, just as the pandemic began. How did that impact your approach to the role? Wow, that was really interesting because everything had to be done virtually and I wasn't used to that. So I was, for the first few months in my role at Intel, I was sitting in front of my computer in meetings for 10 12 hours a day, constantly meeting after meeting after meeting, listening to people and getting to know people all through a computer screen. And obviously that went on for much longer than we had anticipated. And it took a really long time before I started to be able to see people in person. I have a big team and I didn't meet my team in person for over a year. I can't even remember how long exactly it was, but just this year have finally had the opportunity to go meet people in person. And that's been a game changer. So it made it harder without question to integrate into a team. And, you know, you're coming in to lead a team and you don't get to see them in person. It, it's a challenge, but we persevered and we were all in it together and it worked out, but it's something I'll never forget. It's so difficult, I think, to get the balance right because there's so many benefits to remote work and hybrid work. But particularly if you're joining and onboarding in a new organization, as you say, leading a really large team, when you don't have that opportunity to engage face-to-face -face and build those relationships, it undoubtedly has an impact. And I think we had our bright flag summit where we brought the entire team together for the first time in uh, over two years back in June, and you could kind of feel the energy that created, see how kind of cross-functional relationships were built, 
And it was hugely positive and I think plays a really important role for us that kind of ensuring there is a space as a company that allows facilitates remote work, ensuring there's a space for that face-to-face engagement. There was almost an emotional aspect to Clock in Las Vegas where this incredible community had been remote, had been online for a long period of time. To be able to bring everybody together was hugely impactful. I'd be interested in understanding what clock has meant to you personally in your own career it's been huge this can be a lonely role because a lot of people are the only person in their company that does it and there aren't a lot of people to commiserate with inside your company and or collaborate with or brainstorm with and you need that support system that community of people to lean on and get ideas from and share things with. And it's hard sometimes to do that with people in your own company. So this has given me the support structure I've needed to feel comfortable doing my job, to be successful in my job. And that's why I've leaned in so much into leading the organization, because I want it to sustain and be there for others as they pursue their careers because it's meant so much to me. And going back to what you were saying about the emotional aspect of CGI this year, it was an incredible experience being around everybody again. And I think that confirmed for so many people how important the community is to them. I remember when I saw you in the exhibit hall and we chatted for a while and just thinking to myself, it's so nice to see him like in person, you know, rather than like interacting on LinkedIn or or whatever other means we try to do, because there's just that human connection Mm -hmm. and the ability to get together and do that in person is a game changer, I think for everyone. And so that's why the emotions were flowing because we realize that this is special. We have something special in the legal operations community, not just in clock, but the broader legal operations community. It's a very special professional field and people feel connected with each other and it's unique and special and clock obviously helps to foster that. And so it's important to me. And I think what makes the community so special is that the most experienced senior people in the space like yourself giving so much back, giving back their time. And what kind of became kind of a very clear at clock when you kind of physically see people in person is that the community, number one, has grown so much. And number two, there is just so many people at kind of each stage of maturity, maybe in their first legal operations role and kind of individual contributor in a larger team or the first hire into a company that's building a function from the ground up or leaders like yourselves who've now been in the space for a long time, leading really large teams, doing incredible, really advanced things. And there is that kind of mentality of paying it forward and, and sharing and, and help it, helping people develop individually and find their own path. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. And, and I think you, you probably need to have been living under a rock not to understand that the, the clock 12 core competencies that you, you already referenced, they're an incredible resource I would always point people to who, who are, are starting legal operations that I'm speaking with. And so a lot of incredible work has already been done, Mike. 
I'm interested in understanding what your kind of core areas of focus are looking forward as, as president of CLOCK. Yeah, it's sort of a three-pronged approach. The first is just to continuously improve and enhance our content and our ability to connect with our members. That's something that we're heavily focused on because getting back to what we were saying about the support structure, we want to make sure that's as good as it can possibly be for all of the new people coming in to the legal operations field. There are many people who are now are in school and they want to be legal ops pros. That never was the case before. We want to make sure that they are supported. And so we are, as I speak right now, we are just about, I think, at 5,000 members in CLOCK. And when people are listening to this later on, we'll probably have long surpassed that number. That's a remarkable thing, considering our beginnings. Just six years ago, we incorporated in 2016, and we've grown to 5,000 members in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. It's a really special thing, and we want to make sure that all of those members are supported. So that's number one. Number two, we want to connect the ecosystem. So one of the things that I've done and I've been very focused on is being inclusive of the entire ecosystem in CLOCK, bringing in members from every element of the ecosystem. It used to be just in-house people could be members of CLOCK. That is long gone. We then introduced law firms and now we have technology companies like Bright Flag and others who can join CLOCK and be just as much a part of the membership as everyone else. And that's so important because together we will succeed, divided we will not. We have to bring in the entire ecosystem in order to accomplish the transformation of the business and practice of law that we are pursuing. It will take everyone. That is a major shift. And that's something that I think is very special. It's something that was well represented at CGI this year. And people constantly tell me how much they appreciate that. So really being inclusive of the entire ecosystem and being that center to help everybody come together as one and focus on the transformation that we need to see in this industry. And then third, and certainly not least, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which wasn't a major pillar of our strategy before, even though it was always something we cared deeply about. We have a DEI committee now focused on bringing in diverse professionals into the profession and keeping them here and helping them reach the highest heights in their organizations and in the industry. So those are the three things that I am most focused on as, as president of CLOP. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. And DE&I is an area we see legal operations teams playing a really fundamental role, not even just in the context of the legal department, but in the broader organizations as thought leaders in, in terms of how to drive DE&I strategies. I was talking to Anna Richards from Zendesk about this, and, and they've really been at the forefront of, of the work Zendesk has done in this area. So I think it's great to see that focus from leadership in, in CLOCK in, in that space as well. Is there any kind of final advice you'd give to somebody at an early stage in their career 
they might be working as a lawyer, as a paralegal in management consulting or finance, who might be considering moving into the area of legal operations. Is there any advice that you'd give to them? Have a growth mindset. Being a legal operations professional requires knowledge in a lot of different areas of expertise. And nobody comes into it with all of that knowledge. You might have expertise in finance, or you might have expertise in technology, or you might have expertise in law, Mm. or a number of areas that are important to understand in this field. But you're not going to have it all. Mm. You have to have willingness and a, to learn and a love of learning and a growth mindset to continuously improve your own knowledge set and skill set to be successful in this role because it's not an easy job it's a hard job and we often say don't come into this job if you think it's going to be easy because it's not you're a change influencer and that's hard. So you have to be willing and willing to learn and love to learn and constantly learning. I'm still learning every single day and I've been doing this a long time. And so if that's your profile, Mm. I think that it's a wonderful career. If that's not your profile, you might want to think long and hard about whether it's something you want to get into. I think that's such great advice. And there's such a, a wonderful diversity of, of backgrounds and perspectives in the legal operations leaders in the community today. And they are great examples of the fact there is no predefined career path, the necessity, as you say, to have that growth mindset. I do observe sometimes there might be a good point of entry for somebody if they come from a finance background, starting in a role focused on financial management of the legal team. But then, as you say, you have to have the growth mindset to kind of expand beyond that, take on other areas, other responsibilities, ultimately stepping up into leading the function. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. And I was talking to somebody recently who's saying it's it's pretty rare in large organizations today to be able to join kind of a, a new function that is kind of expanding in influence and their, the scope of responsibility. So as you say, from what I observe with our customers, it is certainly not an easy job, but a hugely rewarding one and an impactful one. Mike, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. The final question for me, unrelated to the world of legal operations, when you're not dragging your kids around on a tour of Isla Vista, what do you enjoy doing in your spare time? My spare time has been limited since I took on the role of president of Clock because obviously I have my day job, which consumes most of my time. And then in my spare time, I'm doing a lot of clock things. And But when I do have free time beyond both of those roles, my heavy focus is my, my kids. They're both teenagers and they're getting on in age. So I, I love to watch them play sports. They're both great athletes and I have a great time doing that. But beyond that, I like to play golf. I like to ski and snowboard get some opportunities to do those things. We spend some time up in Tahoe. We love to travel. And frankly, since my kids are are teenagers, my wife and I are thinking a lot about what life is going to look like when we're empty nesters and trying to figure out what we're going to do. And I think travel is a big, a big thing on our bucket list. So those are the main things. You know, I'm still at, at the nappy stage with our young daughter. So a few years behind you, but I'm sure 
time passes <laughs> far too quickly. Hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up in, in London at the upcoming Clock Institute. We're really excited that we're going to be able to have that this year and, and looking forward to seeing you and many other people from the growing clock community in, in EMEA in person. I'm excited too, Alex. Thanks so much for having me today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Mike. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.